Dmitry Shostakovich liked to tell a story about the legendary pianist Maria Udina in her riveting 1953 radio broadcast of Mozart's Piano Concerto in A Major, K488. Apparently, the music wafted into Joseph Stalin's quarters, and smitten, he requested a tape of her performance be pressed onto shellac and delivered to him by morning. He never woke up to hear it, though, since he suffered his fatal heart attack later that night. The story, too good for reality, perfect as myth, has lingered as a testament to Udina's artistry. Armando Iannucci even opens his buckled farce, The Death of Stalin, with a dramatization of the scene. In Playing with Fire, the story of Maria Udina, pianist in Stalin's Russia, Elizabeth Wilson closes the door on the tale as history in her first appendix. What's beyond mythic is how Udina plays Mozart's disconsolate slow movement. This adagio in F-sharp minor, made more poignant by the enchantments of its major mode bookends, has a delicate instability that stays with you, and Udina's relatively slow tempo doesn't lag so much as echo some ancient internal grief. Her pianism has an uncanny transparency, as though her fingers channel some higher realm of expression. That such Udina stories even circulated tells us a lot about how prized classical music remained in Soviet Russia long after the Bolsheviks mowed down the aristocracy. As Stalin's psychosis grew, Communist Party doctrine kept moving the goalposts as to where acceptable art lay and where degenerate art began when his purges commenced in the early 1930s. Stylistic traits like formalism became abject sins only to be recast as virtues. Composers, painters, and performers maneuvered through minefields while cultivating underground networks. Maria Udina was one of the lucky ones never to have been imprisoned, but her life reads like a promise robbed. She was born in 1899, the fourth of five children, in the largely agnostic Jewish town of Neville, a small city in the Pale of Settlement near today's Belarus, east of Lithuania. Her early teachers included Theor Lashitsky in St. Petersburg, who also taught Artur Schnabel, Mishislav Horsowski, and Ignaz Friedman. She followed her next teacher, Felix Blumenfeld, to Kiev, and then to Moscow, where she joined fervent intellectual circles of musicians, philosophers, novelists, historians, and political theorists, and every stripe of eccentric. Udina returned to Neville for the summers, where, by sheer coincidence, some of the country's best philosophical minds, including Mikhail Bakhtin, Matyev Kagan, Valentin Voloshinov, and Boris Zubakin, gathered around the time of the revolution. The leading spirit among this circle of thinkers around Bakhtin was the literary critic Lev Velisevich Pumpiansky. Bakhtin and the poet Boris Pasternak became her lifelong friends, both men respecting Udina's mind even above her musicianship. Playing with Fire includes a picture of Udina at Pasternak's grave in 1970, and on the 10th anniversary of his death, four months before she herself died. Bakhtin observed, as only men in that era could, that she had a rather rare ability for philosophical thought. As you know, there are many who can philosophize in this world, but few who can become philosophers. Udina was amongst that number. She could have become a philosopher, something which is even rare in women. As part of this intellectual circle, Udina participated in readings and informal salons and translated St. Augustine's Confessions from German into Russian 
before asking herself why, there already existed a good translation into Russian from the original Latin. Eudina converted to Russian Orthodox Christianity in her early 20s, eventually joining a radical schism known as the Josephites. She identified with Bach's religiosity, clinging to the idea that you couldn't really perform his music without a belief in the divine trinity. She also developed a theory about how his choral work informed his instrumental pieces. As her career developed, the Soviet state twisted itself into pretzels, figuring out which Bach was non-spiritual and therefore acceptable, stoking a furious underground that Eudina symbolized. Wilson depicts Eudina's faith as deeply intuitive. As a student, for example, Eudina suffered a catastrophic injury. Her thumb was nearly severed from the hand. It was only attached by a tendon. The cut was that deep. Marina had been wielding a scythe with next to no skill. By some miracle, the wound healed and her pianism did not suffer. Somehow, Eudina eluded Stalin's secret police even as she watched many of her closest friends get shipped off to the gulag camps to be tortured and worse. Her onstage charisma explains only part of this providence. After graduation, she served as a generous and exacting piano teacher and chamber music coach at the Moscow Conservatory, but was fired for her openly religious views. Wilson, a cellist herself, as well as a distinguished biographer of Dmitry Shostakovich, actually heard Eudina play during a Mississlav Rostropovich cello class in the late 1960s and recalls the wild rumors about her legend. She slept in her coffin, untrue. She slept in her bath, partially true. In her first Moscow apartment, she slept on top of boards placed over the bathtub. She was a nun, untrue. She was Stalin's favorite pianist. As already mentioned, probably a legend. Yudina already enjoys an untranslated Russian biographer in Anatoly Kuznetsov, who claimed that Mozart was the sun radiating out from the center of Yudina's solar system. But Wilson frames her story for a Western audience with exactitude and an ear for Yudina's swelling repertoire. Luckily, thanks to radio broadcasts and her beloved reputation, many of Yudina's recordings show up on YouTube and other streaming services. Renowned for war horses like Beethoven's Hammerklavier Sonata, Opus 106, and his final sonata, Opus 111, she also recorded Bach's Preludes and Fugues, the Goldberg Variations, and many transcriptions of his chorales. She also served up premieres by her classmates, Sergei Prokofiev, Shostakovich, her forehand partners at private gatherings. She famously began performing Chopin's Preludes, Opus 28, as a set, a previously uncommon way to program them. Wilson emphasizes the ambitious programming during this era before audiences had fully adjusted to recordings and early modernist threads begin gaining attention. Yudina turned Prokofiev's fourth sonata and Shostakovich's second piano sonata into anchoring works, though neither have yet entered the mainstream. She also focused on their chamber music, along with forgotten works by the then-famous Sergei Taneyev, who taught both Rachmaninoff and Scriabin. To study Yudina's legacy is to trace the fertile intellectual life of pre-revolutionary Russia, showing the overlap that commonly occurred between philosophers and architects, poets and composers, musicians and painters. In this milieu, one's talent was not necessarily limited by one's specialty. Yudina herself pursued courses in philosophy and produced the first Soviet staging of Stravinsky's ballet Orpheus in 1948. She greeted Stravinsky's return to Moscow at the age of 80 in 1961 as if ushering a deity back into his rightful kingdom. 
Udina's style blends emotional candor with riveting technique, even as some glissando washes shed notes in favor of sweep. Her fingers channel an inimitable voice, the sound of someone conversing with greatness and finding her own emotional spaces amid the written notes. Flashes of humor dart in and out of her Beethovenian profundities, reminding us that the recording era has tended to homogenize such singular stylings. To hear Udina open Beethoven's fourth piano concerto with its simple G major chord is to realize that we take him too seriously and oversimplify the weightier elements of his music. The darts of silliness Udina flirts with create larger contrasts, making the familiar repertoire sound bigger, more full of possibilities than many modern renditions. Her appetite extended well into the chamber repertoire, where she championed little-known pieces like William Walton's Piano Quartet, Hindemith's Instrumental Sonatas, and now obscure works like Galina Usfolkaya's Violin Sonata. You would expect such a large, inimitable sensibility to be full of opinions, and Udina shared a lot of insights through her letters. She didn't find Van Cliburn's bombast at the 1958 Tchaikovsky competition impressive because of his dated repertoire. And here's how she wrote to a friend about Shostakovich's tribute to Bach's well-tempered clavier. The more closely I study Shostakovich's preludes and fugues, the less inspiring I find them. What were these works compared to Cat, she asked, enthusing about her own cat, Kisanoff, whose tail reaches all the way to Austin Kino, who runs up and down my Shakespearean staircase, knocks at my window, and prefers Mozart to Bach. Cats are indescribably wonderful. Shostakovich's fugues less so. Wilson's narrative, while patchy and frequently stalled in program details and obscure relationships among performers, rewards persistence. To start with, she brings an eye for the avalanche of contradictions the Soviet regime imposed. Paradoxically, censorship ensured the extremely high standard of literary translation in Soviet Russia. Poets like Akhmartova and Mendelstam, unable to publish their original work, resorted to translation in order to earn money. From the late 1930s, Pasternak became known for his brilliant translations of Shakespeare's plays and later of Goethe's Faust. The poets may have resented the time taken from their own work, yet Soviet readers reaped great benefit from their wonderful translations. Chronicling an epic life among an artistic community that seemed to thrive almost because of its oppression, Wilson draws a portrait of creativity in conflict amid desperate circumstances. It was precisely during the war years that members of the Soviet intelligentsia and the most eminent musicians joined the Communist Party out of patriotism, amongst them David Oistrakh, the conductor Kirill Kondrashin, and pianist Yakov Fleer and Yakov Zak. Although equally patriotic, Udina rejected out of hand any involvement with the Bolshevik Party, which had so mercilessly persecuted her fellow believers. Now, during the war, religious repression was eased, for the church was useful to the party in galvanizing patriotic war efforts. And this, in a handwritten list of 153 pieces that she broadcast from July 1941 to June 1943, we see how her repertoire emphasized the patriotic, from Glinka to Rachmaninoff, from Borodin to Prokofiev. She also played Chopin and Beethoven regularly. She noted that she deliberately ignored Schumann, who knows, perhaps one of his descendants was fighting with the Nazi troops. There were also special broadcasts to allied countries. For instance, Eugenia chose to acquaint British audiences with Chaparin's second piano sonata. 
Udina's late career centered around a piano reduction of Stravinsky's Orpheus and a collaboration with Pasternak on Russian translations of Schubert's lead, all while watching the resurgence of Russia's artistic status as Leonard Bernstein brought the New York Philharmonic's keening version of Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony to Russian concert halls in 1959. I was the last Soviet-Russian citizen to see Bernstein at the airport, she bragged. Amid increasing ailments in her final years, she took on more literary work, translating Felix Weingartner's book on Beethoven's symphonies from the German, as well as violinist Josef Segeti's memoirs with strings attached from the Hungarian, a manuscript still unpublished. Indefatigable to the end, Udina regained consciousness from a diabetic episode in November 1970 to say, Death, too, is a feat. <laughs> 